The following audio is from Park Church in Denver, Colorado. More information about Park Church is available online at parkchurchdenver.org. We're going to be in Exodus 23 this morning, if you'll open there with me. Exodus 23, verses 10 to 19. For six years you shall sow your land and gather in its yield. But the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat, and what they leave the beasts of the field may eat. You shall do likewise with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. Six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may have rest, and the son of your servant woman and the alien may be refreshed. Pay attention to all that I have said to you, and make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let it be heard on your lips." Three times in the year you shall keep a feast to me. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. As I commanded you, you shall eat unleavened bread for seven days at the appointed time in the month of Abib, for in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty-handed. You shall keep the feast of harvest of the first fruits of your labor, of what you sow in the field. You shall keep the feast of ingathering at the end of the year when you gather in from the field the fruit of your labor." Three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord God. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened, or let the fat of my feast remain until the morning. The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Did you catch that last verse? We left that in there just for you. Favorite commandment. So, main takeaway, this, this week, if you're uh, boiling a goat, just don't do it in its mother's milk. And uh, pray about that. Enjoy. Follow Jesus. Uh, we're going we're gonna to take a moment and pray here. My name is Gary. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, the passage this morning uh, we're going to be talking about is this idea of Sabbath rest, this concept of sacred time. And, uh, and I think, at least in my own experience, but also as I consider what's going on in the culture around us, um, that this uh, is one of the most uh, important concepts uh, that we're going to be talking about this fall. I think there's a spiritual reality, uh, spiritual powers that are at play and cultural kind of like um, impulses that are actually suffocating faith and the call, the invitation to find rest in Jesus and to orient our lives around the rest that he provides um, is, a, is a massive affront, really a revolution against some of the cultural values that we've absorbed. And so my prayer is that this wouldn't just be a time of learning about God's word, but that God would actually be setting us free from cultural bondage and drawing us into the rest and the joy and the peace that he offers us. So we're going to take a moment and ask that his spirit would work in power. Let's pray together. Jesus, we, um, we ask right now that you would speak peace over the chaos of our hearts. Um, We're asking that you would take the restlessness that um, so so often plagues us and that you would um, lead us into a deeper sense of joy this morning. Um, Jesus, where we feel trapped, where we feel anxious, where we feel overwhelmed, where we feel um, 
subject to this tyrannical pressure? Uh, Would you offer peace? Would you liberate people this morning and draw us deeper and deeper into your love, we pray. Amen. This passage uh, this morning uh, feels really personal for me because of some of my own story. If I look at the rhythms in my life, uh, the rhythms in my life have historically been work, 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 burnout. Uh, Work, 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 burnout. And uh, and that kind of rhythm uh, has really hurt me. It's hurt my relationship with God, but it's also hurt people around me. It's hurt my family. It's hurt the people I work with here at the church. It's hurt people in my past. Um, and my inattentiveness to my own emotional state and to what it means to actually experience peace and rest with God, what it, what it means to actually walk in this life in rhythms that are sustainable and life-giving where we can attend to the presence of God and the day-to-day fabric of our life and the weekly kind of rhythms of our life. My, my resistance to doing that, my resistance to rest, Uh, has led me into some really toxic and unhealthy patterns that are hard to kind of reorient. Like I find myself addicted to activity, um, addicted to busyness, addicted to distraction. And if I'm not working, then the the burdens of the things I need to get done are so heavy that the main way I've found to escape those burdens is by kind of distracting myself or numbing myself or finding some way to kind of like mute that sort of like under-the-surface anxiety. But I feel like uh, this kind of experience that I've had is I've talked to people about my own experience in this world um, and my feeling of this kind of like um, restlessness, this busyness that feels inescapable at times, just the weight of commitments and the weight of responsibility. It feels like to actually slow down and rest feels hard uh, because it means delaying things that really need to get done, that if I delay them, then the pressures become kind of stronger or heavier or I feel more behind or more underwater. I've talked to people in the past about, you know, bragging about how much, how many hours I work. I say bragging, you frame it as like, yeah, I've just been working too much, but it's like, I, I work a lot, you know. Uh, you know, you frame it as a sort of kind of like, uh, yeah, it's probably not healthy, but like, don't you respect me for how hard I work? Um, or, or even in, in certain ways, this experience of feeling like, you know, you kind of have to learn how to breathe underwater. Like the prayer that I've like prayed is like, God, I've been asking to help like get out from underwater. I want to get out, like I want to get out from underwater. And then it was just like, just give me gills. Just help me like learn how to live underwater, you know, because life is just underwater. And I think all of these things have been in me um, just pressures against this really beautiful gift of rest. But as I've um, talked with people, especially over the past year or so, about some of what God's stirring in my life, I feel like it's happening all over the place. Um, that we as individuals feel overwhelmed. Uh, we feel incredibly busy, right? It's like when Dan Morado was here this summer, for those that were here this summer, he talked about like just the propensity of you ask somebody how they're doing. What, how are we doing? We're good, we're good. We're just busy, just busy. So what everybody's saying. And it might be busy with work or busy with commitments or busy with activities or busy with friends or busy with family or busy with whatever it is, but we just feel always busy and it's leading us as individuals, potentially you, to feel this kind of like baseline sense of exhaustion. You're tired, um, some anxiety, 
like of the things you have to get done, the things you have to accomplish around you. It leads to um, even depression, some of what happens even chemically in our bodies around having constant anxiety and stress with this kind of like uh, kind of experience of putting out these chemicals of cortisol. It eventually leads to depression, this kind of like low grade or high grade sense of depression. And these are things that many of us have just learned to cope with in life, that you feel it. You feel chronically busy, chronically kind of like feeling the pressure. And it's not because necessarily we have too much to do. We've actually filled our time up. We've filled our space up with a lot of things we don't have to do. We've just chosen to do it. And in the breaks, we actually fill ourselves up with different distractions to push against that feeling. And, uh, and I think it's not just a problem for us as individuals. It's actually, there's a cultural epidemic. Um, there's a cultural epidemic. There's a guy named Meyer Friedman and another um, cardiologist named Ray Rosenman who coined a term called hurry sickness. Um, you can read about this. I read an article in this earlier this year in Forbes magazine about hurry sickness. You can read it at kind of any business school, law school, any place where it's just like high achieving, kind of like pressure oriented systems are kind of like talking about this real psychological issue. You can read about it in psychiatric journals, this idea of hurry sickness. And here's what the people that coined the term, here's how they described it. They said it's a continuous struggle in an, and unremitting attempt to accomplish or achieve more and more things or participate in more and more events in less and less time. When achieve, 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 participate, 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 right? Where that whole, like the FOMO thing that like became a buzz, a buzz term, you know, a few years back. But this whole thing of like, we want to be achieving more, but we also want to be experiencing more and involved in more. And the more, 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 and we have less and less time. And it's just like, I just wish there were more, you know, hours in a day or more hours in a weekend. And, uh, and just that pressure has actually become a cultural epidemic. I mean, a real epidemic that's leading to all-time highs and things like anxiety, depression, actually in a hyper-connected world. You'd think it leads to a sense of like, we feel connected to one another, but we actually just feel aware of more things that are happening that we ought to commit to. We feel more afraid of disappointing more and more people. And so you live with that sort of pressure of who am I disappointing? Who am I going to say no to? Can I say no to them? How will they feel about me? And then you have status anxiety where you look at social media and you look at kind of what Elaine de Beton would talk about is this kind of like constantly comparing yourself. Other people seem to have a better lifestyle, and so you just need to up your lifestyle game with kind of healthier, you know, like living, which means more exercise. You need to up your lifestyle game with a nicer house or new decor or kind of a new design or cooler vacations or kind of new clothes, whatever it is. You just feel this anxiety, and this is the water we swim in. I I just think it's real. I, I don't know. There might be people in this room that you're like, not me. I like go and spend three hours every morning by a river and like (laughs) invite us in, you know? Uh, Yeah, uh, we're now jealous of you. And, but I think it's a, it's a real issue. Um, There's a a pastor in Portland named John Mark Comer who has been talking about issues like this for a while. Um, His own story and his own life has kind of paralyzed a lot of mine, just that feeling of burnout and just feeling the kind of like toxic um, kind of like restlessness of, of our culture. And so he has like six or seven messages on Sabbath we're talking about today. And, and him and another guy named Mark Sayers talk a lot about our culture, that our culture is kind of oriented around a more culture. So even our economy is kind of like situated and rested on a, on a tapping into our restlessness. 
It's kind of monetizing our restlessness, monetizing our attention span. If you think about just the way ads work on everything you look at on your phone, the way that ads work is the more you pay attention to that screen, the more revenue the kind of like app provider gets because the more clicks and the more time on the screen, people pay more money to put ads there. And so the whole design, the whole system of every screen you look at is monetizing your attention span. The more we can keep your attention, the more we can make money. And the way we're making money is by actually putting before you things that that might give you a sense of joy that are going to kind of like advertise for you. Like if you get this, then you'll have a better life. If you get this, then you'll have a better life. The whole system, the whole system is aimed at kind of like not just monetizing, but exacerbating and augmenting and growing this kind of epidemic of restlessness and this desire to add more and more to our lives. And it is killing us as a society. But what hit me this week that feels made everything kind of like up to the ante is when I began to think about just the spiritual powers behind this whole system. Um, There's an Old Testament theologian named Michael Heiser who wrote a book on the unseen realm, just the spiritual realm. And in one of the chapters in the book, he talks about this concept of cosmic geography. And what cosmic geography is saying is when humanity rebelled against God, where they're made to enjoy life with God in the Garden of Eden, where it's this rested, joyful, harmonious experience in this world, when humanity rebelled against God, they're exiled from the Garden of Eden, that the world itself was kind of like situated under spiritual powers, separated from God, rebellious spiritual powers. And so when you hear Paul, the Apostle Paul, talking about, like in, uh, in Ephesians, talking about we're not wrestling against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and cosmic forces of darkness that are waging war against us in this present age. Or when you hear Paul talk about in Ephesians 2, that we used to be dead in sin and we were following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of uh, disobedience, that we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We are following these spiritually dark powers. And when God liberates us, he's actually rescuing us from the tyranny of those dark powers, making us alive and bringing us into his kingdom. Now kind of like back up, there are just evidences all over the Old Testament and the New that all societies throughout all of the world, throughout all ages, have spiritually dark forces reigning over them, cultivating in people idolatrous desires and pushing people against the voice of God and the presence of God. And so you can look throughout history at all these kind of like pagan idolatrous systems with crazy sacrificial things and kind of like archaic and disturbing practices. And then you look at our society and it's like, oh, do we not have those here? Or maybe the tactics that are suffocating faith in God and muting the voice of God and leading people away from God, maybe they're related to the idols of consumerism, busyness, like massive distractibility. Is it possible that behind the sort of like what feel like these potentially neutral things in life, that behind the sort of cumulative effect are spiritually dark powers under which many of us are in bondage. Like what if the busyness in your life isn't just emotionally unhealthy? What if the busyness in your life, the hyper-distracted, restless life, is muting and suffocating your faith and is under the influence of spiritually dark forces? And we're just naive. 
And we're like, well, it's not bad to do these things because a lot of the things we talk about aren't bad. It's not bad to work. Work is good. It's not bad to enjoy culture. Culture is good. It's not bad to hang out with friends. Friends are good. It's not bad to watch TV. TV is good. It's not bad to do any of these things. But when the cumulative effect of those things is suffocating our ability to rest with God in his world, then all of a sudden that these things, what if, my question that I've had to ask myself is what if I'm addicted to rhythms and practices, what we call liturgies, kind of habits of life that are suffocating my faith in God. And and I want to love him and you want to love him and you're here because you want to follow Jesus and you want to learn from his word, but we get back into the practices of life, the rhythms of life, and the rhythms themselves are undermining a desire for God by putting before us a whole system that's suffocating our faith. It is a, like, I feel it as, I feel this moment as a warfare moment in my life and for you. That what we're looking at when we look at what God's calling us to, to enjoy his rest and to orient our life around the peace and the rest, the shalom that he provides, it is a warfare moment for you. If you could imagine a room full of people on a battlefield, supposed to be living our lives, enjoying the presence of God, rested with him, knowing his love, hearing his voice, walking in his ways, feeling a lightness to his yoke and the ease of the burden that he gives, this ease of life, this peacefulness of life, this breath of life. Like that's what we're supposed to be living and instead we're all suffocating, passing out on the battlefield passing out because we're not spiritually breathing. Um, One theologian, Ronald Rollheiser, we've quoted him a few times. Uh, He talks about what are the demons that are tormenting our culture. And he names four. Naivete about the nature of spiritual energy, number one. Number two, pathological busyness. Number three, distraction and restlessness. And number four, a critical problem with unbalance. A critical problem with balance. And so here's what he talks about when he talks about pathological busyness, distraction, and restlessness. He says narcissism or excessive preoccupation, preoccupation with ourselves, pragmatism or excessive focus on work and achievement, and restlessness, the excessive greed for experience, make us so habitually self-absorbed that we rarely find the time and space to be in touch with the deeper movements inside of and around us. For every kind of reason, good and bad, we are distracting ourselves into spiritual oblivion. So what I'm I'm wanting to do right here as we get into it is just like set the stakes. Like paint for you a picture. What if you are addicted to things that are suffocating your faith? What I'm not going to give you today are rules about how to practice Sabbath or why you have to. What I want to do is paint a picture for what's at stake. It's your soul's at stake. And there are practices that God has given as a gift to help cultivate spiritual life that we should want to. If you have a hunger for God, it should be like, how do I kind of like begin this process of like, we need an intervention in our lives. It's going to mean a reorienting of things. And we're going to probably go through some like withdrawals and going to go through like a a season of detox. And it's going to be hard and we're going to need to support each other. But what would it look like to cultivate in our community a restful presence, a peaceful presence with each other, with our God, and in his world. And so we're going to look at that with this concept of Sabbath. I'll say it was, um, it was three years ago when I began trying to practice Sabbath, and it was really hard. I had like no concept for it. 
Um, I had some concept for a day off, but didn't do it much, but began practicing some, somewhat. And it was really hard for me. And it was probably a year ago when kind of the bigger picture of what Sabbath, the beauty of what Sabbath is calling us to, this like not just a day off of work, but a time to actually delight uh, in God and his world. And, uh, and since then, it's been a war. And I feel it as a war. And I had this like moment um, about a month or so ago Whereas like at the end of a day, I wasn't taking time in the day to slow down, pay attention to the presence of Jesus. And, uh, and I just felt the weight of the day. And so I finished the day and I was just emotionally exhausted at the end of the day and sitting watching, you know, you know, some episode of something over and over and over. It's probably something some of you wouldn't like. That's why I'm not saying the name of it. And then, um, and then like finished that. And then I'm watching like late night talk shows and kind of like watching, like just continuing to watch these things. And finally, like I'm tired and I, I go and begin to get ready for bed and and I just felt Jesus saying, like, I am trying to rescue you from this. I'm trying to rescue you from this. And immediately had this, like, image, this metaphor um, from, from Matthew 13, where it's the, the parable of the sower and the seeds. And in the parable of the sower and the seeds, it says that the word of God is sown out, and it, and it lands on these different types of soil. Some lands along a path, and a bird that's a representative of satanic powers comes and snatches it away, and the seed never grows. Some lands uh, in this dry ground, and in the dry ground, it kind of gets a shallow root system, but as it grows, the sort of like um, the, the pain and the tribulation and the trials of this world are like the sun, and it bakes it and scorches it out, and it dies, and it doesn't bear any fruit. Some are kind of thorns that land in the ground, and they, and they get a little root system, and as they grow up, thorns come and just begin to choke out the growth that this seed is experiencing. They begin to choke it out. And it says, Jesus says that these thorns represent the kind of cares of this world and the desire for riches. The cares of this world and the desire for riches. So every time I've talked about that, now there's a seed that like lands in the soil and grows and bears fruit and gives life to others and continues to multiply. It's beautiful. But every time I've thought about this parable, I'm like, oh God, help me, you know, not become that. Help me not become like somebody that, because of the cares of this world, and like kind of the things that I want to get out of the world, and the desire for riches, like help me not become that. And this image was like, what if I've been that? What if my experience of Christianity is a very suffocated, very anemic experience of Christianity where I've basically been largely choked out by thorns that Jesus is trying to rescue me from. And so the image was these thorns. At first, the thorns were like around my leg and it just felt like Jesus was like trying to pull me out. And immediately in a moment of conviction, it was like, no, they're not around my leg. They're around my arm and I'm hanging on. I kind of want him to rescue me, but I kind of don't want to give these things up either. Because what might that mean? And this has been kind of like the warfare that I feel like we're kind of wading into this morning. And so what I, what I want to do is not, not give like a massive exegetical exposition of everything that's happening in this passage. I just want to hone in on, on Sabbath, this concept of Sabbath that shows up here. It's in the Ten Commandments. It's the Fourth Commandment. It shows up again uh, in this passage. It'll show up again even later in Exodus 31. It'll show up again in Leviticus. It'll show up again in Numbers. And it becomes a massive theme for the people of God. Um, and so here's the kind of heart of what I want us to, to see this morning. That God wants to liberate you from the tyranny of busyness and to welcome you into a Sabbath rest. God wants to liberate you from the tyranny of busyness and to welcome you into his Sabbath rest. Um, and so I'm going to kind of like look at a couple, um, a couple things from Exodus 23 and, uh, and we'll 
hone in on a couple pieces of it. There's a lot here about feasts that for the sake of time, uh, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on. I'll mention something about them observationally, uh, but we'll, we'll focus on Sabbath here this morning. Um, look with me at the text. This is Exodus 23, starting in verse 10. For six years you shall sow your land and gather its yield. But the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat, and what they leave the beasts of the field may eat. You shall do likewise with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. Six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may have rest, and the son of your servant woman and the alien may be refreshed. Pay attention to all that I've said to you, and make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let it be heard on your lips. And he's going to mention three feasts. And so let me just kind of like lay the land real quick of what's happening in this passage and and broader in Exodus. Um, He's really going to lay out three series of sevens. Um, Three series of sevens. There's going to be Sabbath, which is a seventh day festival every seventh day. Uh, In the Hebrew time, that was on Saturdays, from sunset on Friday, our Friday, to sunset on Saturday. This was Sabbath, once a week. And then every seven years, there was a Sabbath year. And on the Sabbath year, it was a year that you're supposed to let your land lie fallow. You weren't supposed to till your land and farm your land. You're supposed to let it lie fallow. And it was going to actually create kind of the ability for other people to to kind of benefit from the sort of like um, extraneous kind of growth that's happening without cultivation. Um, you're going to have to work to prepare for that year to actually be able to live off of the produce of previous years. And, uh, and it's a massive time that's actually providing kind of social justice, a restorative work in the world, providing for the poor and the marginalized and the community. But then there's another festival that was after seven sevens. So after seven, seven years, so after 49 years, you can read about this in Leviticus 25, there was a time called Jubilee. So the 50th year, after seven cycles of seven, they would have a a year called Jubilee. And the year of Jubilee, it was a massive reset button for systems of power. It's really interesting. Everybody would kind of like take whatever land they had acquired and they would give it up and they'd go back to their kind of like homeland of their family group. And if anybody had lost land and had found themselves in different kind of positions of kind of indentured servitude or some sort of debt, they would actually be forgiven the debt and they would go back and get the land that they had had, you know, 40 years or 50 years previous. And so in this whole system, it was not inappropriate. Maybe there was a, maybe there's like a, a flood that wiped out your field and you had no produce. And because you had no produce, you're experiencing poverty. Because of your poverty, poverty, you took your family and you sort of came under the, like, kind of the leadership or under the care of another family. But you lost your land. You had to sell your land. And maybe years and years later, you've stayed in this situation of poverty and your children have stayed in this situation of poverty because they were born into it. And, and another family has kind of benefited because things went well for them. And after 50 years, God's like, reset. Reset. Everybody go back. My goal, my end goal for humanity is not for the strong to become stronger, for the powerful to become more powerful, for the rich to become richer. Though that happens in economy, my goal is that even when those things happen, that we would actually be a people that fight for justice and for restoration and for equity in the world. And so he sows into his kingdom this massive reset button. If you begin to think about the economic implications of something like that, it's stunning. It is stunning. When you think about the socioeconomic implications of that, it's beautiful. But it's so far different. So all of these systems, every seventh day, this experience of rest and delight with God and worship, every seventh year, slaves would be freed no matter what. Kind of like brought them into slavery, they'd be freed to go out and kind of like forge their own way in the world. And every kind of seven seven, so after 50 years, a massive reset button. And all of it is saying something about what God wants us to experience in his world. 
that we would be a people that would find rest, that we'd find justice, that we'd find provision, that we'd find freedom, that we'd find celebration, that we'd find delight in his kingdom, that his kingdom would be marked by these things. And the rhythms were given to kind of like show humanity a better way. And it's powerful. We're going to hone in on a Sabbath day um, today, um, but there's just kind of a broader system that uh, kind of is pointing to not just what God has done in creation, but what he's headed towards in his kingdom. And then there are these three, what they call pilgrimage feasts. You have the Feast of um, Unleavened Bread. You have the Feast of the Harvest, which became the Feast of Pentecost. And you have the Feast of the Ingathering, which became what what was called the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. These are different festivals, like week-long festivals, where people would leave kind of wherever they lived, and they'd travel to Jerusalem for three purposes. One, to draw near to God, to the temple. Two, to celebrate his past works, his, his incredible works of provision and deliverance and power and guidance throughout history. And three, to actually anticipate like what the fullness of his kingdom would look like. And so they had these rhythms in their world that kind of continued to put before them the, the work of God in the past, the presence of God in the present, and then the kind of like future plans of God for what he wants to create. And the reason why I think it's significant, and I wish we could, well, I'm saying this now, We'll spend more time on that in Advent. Uh, And here's why. Um, Because we also orient our years around rhythms. We do. We orient our years around rhythms. But the rhythms almost have like zero to do with like helping us understand the power of God, his past works, his presence, worship. Most of our kind of like society-oriented rhythms are rhythms created by American culture to celebrate kind of past things in American history. Uh, to celebrate kind of like cultural moments. You think about what are the big moments that we celebrate as a culture? You know, it's like, well, we have, you know, our kind of like days off, our our three-day weekends. Well, what do we do on those? You know, we have our summer breaks for those that are in school or for those that have kids. You have Fourth of July. You have, you know, Halloween. You have Thanksgiving. Well, what do we do on those, right? You have Christmas season, which like could be, you know, Advent is like feels good, except for like what are we doing in Christmas season besides celebrating consumerism? Really? Like as a society, the rhythms we have aren't cultivating like a love for God and a remembrance of him. So it's no wonder we're kind of inundated by this air and this kind of like water we're swimming in is really undermining what it means to know the presence of God. I'm not advocating for anything in particular, but just to be thoughtful around the rhythms, the weekly rhythms, the annual rhythms, and the long-term rhythms of your life and the way it cultivates a different vision of a kingdom And it's either the kingdom of God or it's the kingdom of man. It can either give you life or it can kind of suffocate your life. And I think we're inundated by cultural liturgies, rhythms that are suffocating our life. And one way to press against it, a a first step maybe, is through Sabbath. And so let me uh, hit a few pieces on Sabbath. Kind of like open up what hopefully will be a conversation for those of you in your gospel communities or among friends or among spouses or roommates um, to help you begin to think, what does it mean to live into a more beautiful way? And so here's a definition of Sabbath. It's a weekly 24-hour period of time to rest from your burdens and to enjoy the gift of life with God in his world. It's a weekly 24-hour period of time to rest from your burdens, not just rest, and to enjoy, to delight in, like life, with God and his world. And it's not like a, it's a gift. Um, I'm going to kind of walk through a few principles here that I think might um, help, help us kind of like press into what it is. Principle number one, um, you were designed for Sabbath. 
You're designed for it. So um, in Exodus 20 with the Ten Commandments, what it kind of harkens back to is the creation order, that God created in six days. And the, and the prevalence of the word work in the creation narrative is overwhelming. God works, works, works. And work is very good. Work is valuable. Work is beautiful. Part of the way we image God is by laying down our lives, spending ourselves, expending our energy to actually kind of produce something valuable in the world according to whatever vocation and gifting and opportunity God's given you. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And so we're a, a church that wants to like celebrate the goodness of work. It's beautiful. It's good. This sermon's about the, the, the balance, the other side of that coin, this rhythm. That after God works for six days, God rested. He Sabbathed from his work. And the idea of Sabbath in the seventh day of creation and in the, the narrative is not just that he stopped working, but he made up his home. He began to kind of like dwell in and enjoy and delight in all that he had made. Six days of creating value, producing something beautiful, and then a day of not creating, not producing, just enjoying, just delighting, just resting. And so these themes began to be cultivated of ceasing from your work and cultivating delight. That Sabbath is a time to cease from your work, to push away from burdens. And that's different for different people, right? If you're training for a marathon and you're running like every day, on Sabbath day, like maybe you should take a day off. But if you never get a chance to run and you like running, but your life is really busy and you hit Sabbath day, like maybe it's a great chance to have a good run. But the idea is pushing away from burden, pushing away from the have to, pushing away from the ought to, pushing away from the pressures and the stresses and the things that are kind of like pushing against your delight. Say, on this day, we, we reject burden. We're pushing away from burden. And we're thinking, we're saying no to burden, we're saying yes to del delight. But delighting in God, in his presence, delighting in his world, delighting in the gifts, delighting in the people, but saying like, this is a day of orienting our life around saying no to burden and yes to delight. And it's a beautiful gift. And so people start saying, well, is it commanded in the New Testament? And you're like, why? Why would it need to be? Why would you need that to be commanded? It's a, it's a part of the fabric of creation. It's commanded often throughout the Old Testament. It's repeated in the New Testament in a different way because it's also laying a foundation for what it means to find rest in Jesus. But Jesus obeyed the Sabbath. He broke kind of like rabbinic Sabbath rules, like legalistic rules around what you could or couldn't do that people had cultivated over time. He broke some of those rules, but he, like the spirit of what Sabbath was, he totally lived into it. On the occasional time where he heals somebody in the Sabbath, people got really frustrated, but largely his life was resting with God. And in those days, even the healing is giving a taste for what Sabbath is, a time of restoration, that we're coming to Jesus to find restoration. So when people would come to Jesus on the Sabbath, he'd be like, yeah, you should be healed. This is what Sabbath is all about. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. I'm the designer of it, the king of it, the creator of it. I'm who it's all about is to find rest and joy with me. People are like, well, you know, are we under the law? It's like, no, but it doesn't mean you should go commit adultery and murder somebody today, you know? You're like, those are in the Ten Commandments. It's like, just because we're not under the law doesn't mean you should, like, find a way to push against God's design. There's something beautiful here that if we kind of, like, stop and say, instead of being litigious about, I want to work more and suffocate my life, what if God's offered us a gift in a better way? A better way. What if he has? 
I think he has. And it's a beautiful, beautiful gift that he's offered. So we're designed for Sabbath. Number two, you are liberated for Sabbath. Not just designed for it in creation, but liberated for it. The Ten Commandments are going to get repeated in Deuteronomy chapter 5. And in Deuteronomy chapter 5, it's not going to ground the command in the kind of creation order from Genesis 2. It's going to ground the command in what God had done to rescue them from slavery in Egypt. So when they're in Egypt, over and over, Pharaoh's like, work more, work more. You're being lazy. You're, and I need you to do more with less. Do more with less. And he was absolutely destroying people with this inescapable burden. And God is saying, I rescued, you, I rescued you out of a kingdom that was crushing you to bring you into a kingdom where I long for your rest, for your delight. Like you're not a slave to these tyrannical structures anymore. Come and find rest with me. Delight with me. And I would say we are in our own Egypt. Every kind of like culture, Egypt is this archetypical like kingdom that's a real kingdom in history, but it kind of represents power structures that are pushing, keeping people in bondage away from worship of the true God. You know, see it kind of recapitulated or repeated in the whole experience of Babylon that the people of Israel experience, that they're in Babylon, this oppressive structure. But even in Babylon, they're surrounded by this thing and the call to keep the Sabbath kept them kind of like safe and secure and like identified them as a people in the midst of a, a culture that was not swimming in that water at all. You were liberated for this. Like God is wanting to rescue you from structures that are suffocating your, your worship. And Sabbath is a way to kind of push against, to revolt against those structures. Like it is, a, is an opportunity for us to say no to the things that are killing us. No to the things that are killing us. We live in a, a toxically anxious system. And God is trying to rescue us. And when he rescues us, we actually get to be a distinct people, which is the third principle. Your light shines through Sabbath. When you begin to cultivate a peaceful presence, like a rested presence, where you're like content in the, in the presence of God, he's enough. So great, I have a job, but I'm not like desperate to climb the ladder at my job because God's enough. I have a home and I'm grateful for my home. Every week we take time to like just be grateful for what God has given us instead of pushing into what we want more and more and more of. But just taking that rhythm actually cultivates contentment that is so unique in our world. A peacefulness, a joy, a rested presence that can be attentive to your own emotional health so that you can actually be attentive to others instead of being constantly reactive. Like, what a light. What a beautiful light. As I think about what do I want to give my kids in this world and think about the addictions to technology and screens and toxic busyness, it's like, do I want to give them, like, set them up to really succeed in this culture? Or do I want to set them up to, like, walk with Jesus in the midst of a culture that crushes people? What would it look like to hand my kids a different way? Like a way that they could be a light as a, as a cultural kind of, like, movements continue to progress and deteriorate lives, which is happening. The stats are stunning. Like, things are, it's, it's painful to consider the, the emotional and spiritual impact of our current kind of like social value system. What would it look like to hand our children a better way? That they know how to rest. They know how to be. They know about the monetizing of their attention. We had this chat with our kids yesterday. Like, hey, we're in a war. There's a spiritual war. And it's not against any person out there. But it is for your soul. And so we want to say, like, what does it mean to cultivate cultivate like life and a hunger for God. Now, if I give my kids rules and don't help them understand the bigger picture, if you impose on family or friends rules, people will revolt against your rules because rules are burden. But a vision for a better way isn't a rule. A vision for like a better life, a vision for like joy with God is something beautiful. 
And if we cultivate that in our community, I think we will shine in the midst of a toxically anxious world. Another one. A day of rest with God cultivates a rested life with God. The more we can slow down and pay attention to the presence of God on Sabbath, the more kind of the emotional pain and weight of life catches up. I will tell you, for me, like slowing down has been so hard. Like I'm like, I sit down, I'm going to rest and, and have a cup of coffee and read a book on my back patio, but there are so many weeds back there. Ah, you know, like I'm just like, well, I'll listen to a podcast and pick weeds while I like listen to a podcast, you know. This happens to me every Saturday. I'm not, I think I pull weeds every Saturday and I'm just like, no, why do I? Okay, leave the weeds. Just, you know, face the house on the back patio. You know, like something, I don't know. <laughs> it's hard because I want everything to be perfect and it's just a chance to say, no, rest. I, I've gotten better, um, but it's hard. It's a practice that takes time to develop. Um, but it cultivates a rested life. What happens is your emotions catch up. Your burdens catch up, your anxieties, and you got to deal with them, which is freaky, which is the real kind of root reason why we have a hard time slowing down. We don't want to deal with the subsurface pain that we carry around all the time. There's a subsurface pain, like a, a low-grade anxiety, a kind of like white noise of depression, like whatever it is. And when you slow down, that stuff comes up to the surface, and it's kind of freaky. But then it's an opportunity to meet God in it and let him speak life and rest, and healing, and cleansing, and refreshing waters over those places, that actually really deals with them instead of keeping them tucked away where they continue to fester and really inhibit your ability to like walk with joy in the world. And so it cultivates this ability to face times of silence and moments of silence that cultivate a more rested presence with God between Sabbaths. And last, Sabbath points us to Jesus. And what Jesus says when he comes onto the scene, uh, one of his most powerful things is this invitation. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, or all who are like kind of toiling and overly burdened, and I can give you rest. I I can give you rest. I want you to come up under my yoke, follow my way of life, which includes like orienting your life around him and reordering your life around his presence. And he says, my, my yoke is really easy. My burden is light. Like life with me is not overwhelming and burdensome. When you walk with me and pay attention to my presence and walk in my ways, there's something available for you, a lightness and a freedom. Like right now, just like take a deep breath right now. Take a deep breath. God is here with you and he wants to walk with you out of this place today. Not to leave him in the place, to walk with you out of this place. Say, hey, when you walk with me and you follow my way, there's a freedom and a joy. You will find rest for your souls. Um, Sabbath is leading us to Jesus who took upon himself all of the ways that we've turned from him. All of these things that like, that have like weighed us down, that we're constantly trying to work our way back to the Garden of Eden. We're trying to work our way back to paradise. We're trying to work our way back to a kingdom where there's rest and joy and love. And we're exhausting ourselves, trying to work our, our way back into favor with God by being more religious and reading more Bible. And, and you could take Sabbath regulations, like if I do that, then God will be happy with me. So I'm gonna work hard to be awesome at Sabbath so that God will be delighted in me. And what a horrific burden. It's because of Jesus, God is delighted in you. He loves you, 
And he's invited you to walk with him and find the freedom of his love. He laid down his life for us. He paid the penalty for our rebellion. And he says, come to me. You don't need to pay for it. You don't need to earn it. You don't need to deserve it. It's free. I paid for it on your behalf. Come to me and find life and, and find rest for your soul. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. And he's offered us another in a more beautiful way. And that's my hope for us, is that we would be people that would receive his invitation, not just kind of theoretically, but actually in the orientation of our lives, which means something. I mean, it means something about, about your week. Like my family, we've had to reorient our Friday, so I have Friday and Saturday off of work. So we reorient our Fridays to make sure we're ready to rest for us, it's Saturday evening when our kids get home from school, to, or uh, Friday evening when our kids get home from school till Saturday evening. Like that kind of time, we've just said, we've had to reorient the day on Friday to be prepared for Sabbath, which is a totally biblical principle, this time of preparation. You can read about it in Exodus 16. They would gather twice the amount of manna on the sixth day so they wouldn't be needing to gather any on the seventh day. Twice as much work on the day before the Sabbath so that they could actually rest on the Sabbath, just be prepared for it, right? It takes planning, it takes preparation. It might mean reorienting your schedule. You're like, well, what about kids, having little kids? It's, it's hard. You got to figure out what, talk with your spouse or if you're a single parent, like just be thinking about what can be restful for the whole family. You know what's not restful for me? Six birthday parties, <laughs> um, which meant something for our family. That's hard. We had to like talk to our kids about we're, we're aiming for a different way. We're aiming for a different way. And that's going to mean saying no to some things, not all things, but some things. But I want them to have rest also. And, and I want my wife to have rest and she wants me to have rest. So we think like, what could we do to rest together? And, and do we need to do something to help each other get some space to like rest and kind of like, kind of like slow down? And so we do that. We, it looks different, different weekends, but we think about what's gonna be restful together. How do we delight in God together? For many people, Sabbath is Sunday. For most, throughout church history, Christian history, um, Sabbath became Sunday because a, a huge piece of Sabbath is worshiping with the people of God. So you can say, what does it mean to make this a part of a day of just like peaceful rest? Right, so it looks different. It's not about rules, but the call is like orient your life around the presence of God, kind of the kind of resistance of burden and delighting in his world. And, and it's, it's an exercise. It's a practice that will need to be cultivated. And my hope for us as a people is that we'd fight for that for each other, not legalistically, not as a burden, but as an invitation to a better way a way to actually enjoy the life that Jesus has designed us for, that we'd walk with him, we'd know his presence, we'd walk in his ways and experience the type of life that would shine as a light in this world. Let's pray. Jesus, we right now ask for your help. Uh, many of us are addicted uh, to, I feel this in my own heart, addicted to rhythms that have so suffocated my ability to kind of experience the intimacy with you that you've designed us for. And I feel the same thing around this room for many, uh, for many in this room. And so would you powerfully um, work in our hearts to call us into a, a better way? God, would you please protect us from a kind of like very dark impulses to make these legalistic burdens that also suffocate people? Um, would you help us to sort through in our own lives what this looks like and how we can take steps? Would you protect us from shame? Um, would, would this be just a call for us? Would you even right now be calling out to us? I want to set you free. I want to I lead you to life. I want to lead you to joy with me. And Jesus, would you please help us to be a community 
um, where we know your presence and we rest and we breathe and we delight and we live with, with joy and we live as a light in this world for your sake we pray. In Christ's name, amen.